In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, good morning. This may be either good news or bad news for you guys out there, but I want to tell you something. We're going to be in Romans for the rest of the summer and into mid-September. Romans has the reputation of being very heavy on doctrine. Paul is known for wandering down some pretty big rabbit holes that some of us get lost in. Perhaps not the book you pick up for easy Bible reading. Even his apostle, fellow apostle Peter said he writes in the same way in all his letters. Speaking on the matter of salvation, his letters contain some things that are hard to understand. <laughs> so I would invite you to open your pew Bibles because I am going to be going through our, our passage from Romans 5 today. But I do want to say this. I love Romans. When I first returned to the faith of my childhood, my senior year of college, someone told me, read Romans. I'm not sure I would give that advice to everyone, but you know how new Christians are excited to share the gospel? Well, I went around preaching Romans to my unsaved friends, getting some blank looks when I would say things like, guess what? I'm no longer a slave to sin. I'm a slave to righteousness. One friend huffed, well, I would say I don't want to be a slave to anything. All kidding aside, I think it is a given that Romans teaches us how to think those things that are good as our collect today prays. But it also has the power, if we let it, to speak to us in that visceral way it spoke to me so many years ago. Perhaps because good thoughts about God can be so liberating and lead us into deeper into his love and affect profoundly how we practice our faith. So I pray in the weeks to come that you will consider um, opening up your Bibles to the passage from the previous Sunday or the passage for the next Sunday. I can't promise that every preacher is going to preach on Romans, but I think that if you follow along, that when you come to church and you hear the lectionary readings, it will be even deeper for you. So our passage in Romans 5 today is the continuation on Paul's discourse on justification by faith, which he began in Romans chapter 1. He has argued well that salvation is a free gift of God, nothing we can boast of or accomplish on our own. Even the part we think we should get credit for, turning to God in faith, is still a gift we do not deserve. Father James' sermon last week spoke eloquently of receiving these gifts in true humility. But now Paul is taking a turn in the discourse from what justification is to what it means to us, to what is the result of justification, what assurances can we have in the knowledge of our salvation. You'll have to wait until next week to hear how we are set free from sin to serve righteousness. But here in Romans 5, Paul sets up Romans 6 by first speaking to us of the wonderful transformation we have in being in Christ. I hope that as I go through this passage with you, you will see that when Paul is talking about justification, he is not just referring to some forensic legal repositioning, but rather is emphasizing 
that when salvation is given to us, it comes with a real change. So Paul sets out by saying, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. What Paul teaches us here is that Jesus achieved the highest form of peace for us through his reconciling death on the cross. And this is how our passage ended this morning, that we have reconciliation with God, peace with God, and that that is the ultimate state of being. I love that passage from our Old Testament this morning when God says, I have borne you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. I think that's just a wonderful image of how we are brought into God's kingdom. So peace, or shalom, is something that is talked about through the entire Bible. And it is not just something that happens when parties reconcile with each other. It is a state of being, a new place that God has brought us to. It is used throughout the Bible as a place of harmonious well-being, a place of prosperity, security, and joy. Some have inferred here that Paul in the Greek is not simply saying we have peace with God, but even more, let us enjoy our peace with God. Paul continues, we have peace with God through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. Sounds really complicated, but Many commentators agree that this illusion, I think this really helps us here, is rooted in the practice of a king's court, where only certain entitled people are allowed into the presence of the king. Immediately what came to my mind was the passage from Colossians 1. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. In other words, we have been transferred from one kingdom into another. So the natural progression here for Paul would be say that we have gained access to Jesus. We have gained the access to be in Jesus's court. And of course, that is true. But Paul is subtly saying something a little different by saying instead, we have gained access to his grace. Um, So Paul is specifically using grace to emphasize a notion which Douglas Moo states is fundamental to Paul. That is, grace is a state in which a believer lives. God's freeing gift to us does not stop when we become Christians. It continues to be poured out on us so much that we are in a constant state of grace. Grace, then, is not something that is given at the point of salvation, something that could come and go in the Christian's life based upon our own actions or a capricious God. But like peace, it is a state of being where the believer has been given access to live. As Father Akhari often preaches, grace is the active empowerment of the Holy Spirit in our lives that enables us to live out the life God has called us to. So this is why the noun grace appears in tandem with peace 
in every single greeting of Paul's letters in the New Testament, and I looked them all up, and it is true. Every single letter begins with grace to you and peace to you in God our Father, Jesus Christ. The third result or assurance of our new justified state is that now we can rejoice in our hope. In this new existence, we can have hope for our futures. But here comes the kicker. In this new kingdom of grace and peace, we will suffer. And we are also to boast and rejoice in our sufferings. Of course, I could preach another whole sermon on suffering, but I will stick here to what I think Paul is saying about the significance of suffering in the Christian life. First, when we speak of hope, Christians are often referring to the ultimate hope, our future place in heaven. But as important as that is, we have to not be tempted to always speak of hope in that way. We are also to hope that God will continually transform us, to continually reform the character of our being, and he often does that through suffering. Rather than being destroyed by our suffering, we are to be triumph in it, knowing God's sovereignty and love in our life. While peace is a state of being, there is to be no fear of it, no fear in our tranquility. Paul tells us that suffering produces endurance. We are to hope in our future glory, but that is not to be spoken of as some opiate, as Marx famously referred to the Christian religion. But it is that very hope instead that rather sustains us through suffering. Suffering also tests our character. Uh, Some would say that Paul here is saying it makes our character. It makes us who we are. Many years ago, I was going through a very difficult time due to circumstances that God had placed me in. And I was really having a hard time with suffering. And I, at that time, a friend sent me a quotation from Augustine, Augustine, rather, in the City of God, where he states this, Thus the wicked, under pressure of affliction, excreate God and blaspheme. The good, in the same affliction, offer up prayers and praises. This shows that what matters to God is the nature of the sufferer, not the nature of the sufferings. More recently, a few months ago, Bishop Cameron initiated a Zoom conference with me, and he said this was um, just to get to know me better. So he wanted to know how I've been doing, and I relayed to him how hard the past few years had been with me uh, due to my disappointment and relationship that I had with our former rector. And even more, I said, every single church that my husband, Rich, and I have been in has gone through a devastating period of loss and schism due to a problem of leadership. And I relayed all of these different experiences to him one by one. And Bishop Cameron said to me after listening to all these experiences, well, I'm surprised you're even still a Christian. And my reply was that 
I could never turn my back on Jesus because in every one of those circumstances, the love he showered upon me was what got me through the pain and disappointment and the loss of friendship. We will always be disappointed with our fellow Christians. Paul himself was no stranger to church conflict, but we have to know we can trust in God who is not human, who loves us and will bring us through on eagle's wings. So I will end here with Paul's words. Hope does not disappoint us. It does not shame us. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. This new kingdom that we have been told to proclaim in our gospel message today, and which we have been brought into, my friends, is a hard and a wild and a wonderful place because it is where the Holy Spirit lives. Amen.